And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Brian. Hello, everyone. We are back in First Peter after a couple weeks off. Um, I struggled mightily with this sermon, um, and eventually what I realized was I, was I had a sermon accidentally hidden in my introduction. Um, I was already scheduled to preach the next two weeks, so I have just split this out. This is something that came from my introduction, because we're also trying to keep the sermons a touch shorter. Um, now, every time I say I've cut it in half to be shorter, it takes 45 minutes. You're always like, well, how long was the long version? Apparently an hour and a half. Um, so be grateful. This is <laughs> so recapping First Peter, and what I want to do, and what really has happened was I wanted to pause and take a look back at where we've come to in First Peter and re- just emphasize something that we have seen so far in the book. Um, to recap, First Peter was written in around the 60s AD, so it's within 30, 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, it's written to a collection of Christians throughout what's now we refer to as Asia Minor or in Turkey essentially in multiple different places multiple different types of cultures multiple different different ethnic groups and is written by Peter the Apostle likely writing from Rome prior to Nero's persecutions we think that mostly because he doesn't mention them at all and he's writing a letter to Christians preparing them for persecution, or actually telling them how to live as a minority culture. It seems that the culture that has, where these people are, ranges from mildly amused with who these people are to just outright openly hostile. But under any circumstances, they live as a minority culture in a larger cultural setting. And Regardless of whether there's outright persecution or they simply sit kind of on the outside, Peter is writing to encourage them because it is exhausting to live as a minority culture in a majority culture and trying to maintain the identity and the message that culture is meant to maintain. Essentially, you need to at all times be swimming at least slightly against a current. 
Every th most people are going one way in something, and there's at least a couple things where you being from a different culture, if you're going to maintain that different culture, need to go this direction. So there's an intentionality into it, and there's an exhaustion to it. And Peter is writing to people in this situation, likely given the Spirit's inspiration and knowing what is around the corner in the Roman Empire, preparing them for something even harder that's coming their direction. And he writes them to remind them who they are and the testimony they bear. That's his main tact in this letter. Who they are and the testimony they are supposed to be bearing as those people. He starts, and this is, I want to recap the letter, he starts by addressing them as elect exiles, that they are a people who are both elect and that they are blessed by God. They have been chosen by God and set aside. And it talks about how this forming of this body of the church is in, through God's foreknowledge. It's through the work of the Spirit as they come and Christ's work is applied to these people to form a body of believers, a body that sits elect as God's people on this earth. But they are also exiles. They don't get to just to choose to be elect. They are also exiles. And they're exiled in two ways. They're both exiled in the sense that as God's people, they are now longing for a different home. So they are not where they know they should be. And they're also elect because the way they are called to live will set them slightly outside of the culture in which they are living. So he writes to them both those things. Then he goes into a blessing in which he kind of tried to covers the overarching themes of the book. And he does it in a way that sort of covers the span of their life and their relationship with God, that they were a people who have been called to a new birth by God according to his mercy. They've been called into a new life. And they've been given a new inheritance, something that will not fade away, this riches that await them, of which they have a foretaste now. And they have God who will see them through this the whole way, guarding them through their faith and seeing them through the trials that they endure through this. This is not the plan B of everything, but this was something that was actually prophesied by all the prophets who came before. It wasn't like God got to like around the year 25 BC and realized things were just going sideways, so he sent Jesus. But this was what was intended the whole time. It talks about how the prophets knew there was something in what they were talking about that was speaking of something to come. And they longed to look into it that was the, for the benefit of the people at that time with Jesus being the culmination of all of this. Because of this thing, Peter, these things, sorry, Peter exhorts them to live in hope. They are to set their mind fully on this hope that is to shape how they live. They're to live as a people who are holy, because the one who called them is holy, not simply because he likes people who are really strict and don't do things, but because he is holy and wants them to reflect who he is. They're to recognize that all of this was possible because of a costly price paid for them. The gospel is free, but the gospel applies something that was secured at a great price. Through the death of Christ, we have been set free. Freely we have received this because of his costly death. And this all is to lead to a moral transformation. And the focus of this moral transformation is by and large how we live together. It's like a social, when it's talking about the moral transformation. We are to love one another, put away all malice and deceit. So that's the letter we've gone through so far. Um, and I want to read that 
portion of the text, because we aren't going to move ahead, I'm going to move ahead next week, but to read this portion of the text, just listening for those things and that overarching story that Peter's putting out. So this is 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, say your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And can somebody grab my water that I left in my row there? And for a preaching energy drink. Um, water. <laughs> um, so you can see that what Peter's trying to drive so far, this is the section's drawing near to a close. There's one more section that, that, where Peter is going to lay out kind of who we are communally, which is what we're actually going to cover next week. Then he gives this fantastic summary statement of who we are as believers, and then he launches really from there into a bunch of kind of, so live this way. 
But you've heard the overarching ways he's trying to drive who, who we are in that passage. Um, but where I got hung up, and the reason this sermon exists, is as I wanted to recap it, but I kept getting stuck on one aspect that I think we need to highlight if we want to understand how we are supposed to apply the rest of the book. We've covered it. I think it's actually been touched on by all the sermons we've done so far, but I just wanted to take them together and highlight this one idea. So what kind of inheritance do we receive? We receive an imperishable inheritance. Our, pre- our faith is more precious than gold. What is the flaw that Peter notes in gold? It's perishable. And again, then he compares the blood of Jesus to gold and silver. And again, what's the flaw to gold and silver? They're perishable. And all of this comes through a new birth, which is of a an imperishable seed, not a perishable seed. Or to put it more poetically, well, actually, what Peter's doing is he's drawing a contrast. He's trying to draw a contrast between a world and an age that is perishable, though truly glorious in many ways. Gold and silver, he doesn't say, gold and silver are worthless. He recognizes that they are something of great value, yet they're perishable. He doesn't disregard the fact that there is any glory or honor or position in this world, but he notes that it is something that's fleeting. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory, all its glory which is real, like the flower of grass which is real. But the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The glory, but let's say the glory is real. There is real value in the gold. When I became a Christian, I ran into two, and I was a, I want to say late life convert, but it was my 20s, so midlife convert. Um, but I didn't grow up in the church. And when I became a Christian, most of the people I suddenly was around a lot had grown up in the church, and there were two myths that I ran across very quickly that. All of them, it seemed to make sense to all of them, but it didn't make any sense to me. One was that if we just show them Jesus, they'll love him. And I was sitting there as a former non-Christian going, no, I didn't. I actually read your scripture. I've seen the stuff he says. He, I, he, I like him. I like him better than you. But I still don't want him. Because he says stuff, and he makes constraints in my life, and he says something, and if he is who he says he is, and he seems to be kind of clear about this stuff, it means something to me, and I don't want that. And we have evidence of this, because the people who saw Jesus killed him. So I always wondered about the, if we just showed them Jesus, if we just get out of the way and showed them Jesus, they'll just come to him in droves. I'm like, they do come to him too in droves, and then they put him on a cross. So really, if we just get out of the way and show them Jesus, what actually happens is you drive a conclusion very quickly. Some people are really attracted to that, and we do need to get out of the way. Some people really hate it. So that was myth one, not this sermon. Myth two was that nonbelievers are all unhappy, that there isn't somehow a deep longing that they're just unaware of where they're sitting miserable, that there's a Jesus-shaped hole, and they're all just unhappy. I missed that. I was an unbeliever, and the sex and the drugs and the rock and roll 
perfectly happy with all that. <laughs> Jesus came to me and said, I'm true. And my response was, ah, okay, we'll go in this direction. But it wasn't finally the unhappiness in my soul has found, found peace. It was, okay, you are who you say you are. Let's figure this out. And what I found over the next long time I found more sorrow and hardship and challenge in my life as a Christian than I had in all the years that preceded it. I found more hardship in like the next five years or two years than I'd found in all the years that preceded it. And like every two-year increment past that has seemed to be more challenging than all the years that preceded it. Now, some of that was because I was a kid through most of them, but still, even looking at some of the people I know who didn't follow this path, I'm like, it seems to work better for you. That's because there is a real glory to this age. What people who don't believe in Jesus are benefiting from is a world that he created. It's a good world that he created. We have marred it with sin, but his handiwork is still upon it, and we still can enjoy it and feel it. We are still a people made in his image to build culture. We are still a people made in his image to make great things. And there is those works can still happen, and there is a glory that can come with them. The thing is, this age ends. And that's how Peter, so Peter, he tries to do this out because he's not, the Bible doesn't beat around this. It doesn't pretend like this isn't the case. The Bible doesn't pretend like sin's not fun. It just tells you it's fleeting, and it comes with a cost. So there is a world of true honor, that has true honor, true glory, true riches, and true happiness, but it is one that is fading. And to be honest, that is one of the most bitter facts about it. Because every good thing you find, every good relationship you know, your kids, your job, all the good stuff you can find, eventually you lose it. Basically, Ecclesiastes. It's just, it's a whiff of smoke. And the more you like those things, the more you find value in them, the more it hurts to know they can leave you in a moment. You can have a brain aneurysm on your way down the stairs, and it's gone. In contrast, though, there's another world. It's a world that's always been here. It's noted Jesus was before the foundations of the earth. He's been made manifest, but he's always been there. It's a world that has been proclaiming itself consistently. The prophets have been speaking of Jesus, of the truth of what he is. Psalm 19 talks about how, the nature's, how nature proclaims this. It's a world that's now made itself manifest and available to us through Jesus, through his death and his resurrection. And it's a world that we come into through a new birth. And this world is imperishable. We have a taste of that imperishableness now, and we look towards an inheritance where that imperishableness lasts forever. And that is upside down from the way the world works outside of this. Since the fall, life on this earth has been largely defined by death and deprivation. It's always, I feel like I get up here and say it's like every third sermon, but I hate to break it to you, we're all going to die. We got Enoch, we got Elijah, and we got the people who are here when Jesus returns. Everybody else else is going to taste death. 
And what's more, every one of us is, <laughs> Joe's gone through it already once. But every one of us, it's not just that we're going to taste it in some abstract theoretical sense. Every one of us is closer to it now than we were when we woke up this morning. And you're going to be closer to it when I'm done talking in like 55 minutes than you are now. Ah, yes, I'll be done. Your problem is I'm not hot. I get, I get like comfortable at 85, so I'm like, this actually feels kind of good. All you guys are boiling. I'm like, I thought of, I actually had a long conversation about whether or not I should bring my sweatshirt today because it was going to be cold when we left church. So I'm the bad person for all this stuff. I have something terribly wrong with me and my, my, just, my thermostat's off. But death marches towards every single one of us, and it puts constraints on our time. At the same time, we live in a world of limited resources. So you have limited time and limited resources in this age. You learn this very early on. For my children, every night going to bed is like death. From the way they react to bedtime, you think there is no tomorrow. It's, I want to play. You're going to play. Wait, you have nothing to do tomorrow but play. Just go to bed. I can't. I just wanted to can I play 15 more minutes. No, go to bed. It's like they just cease to exist, and who knows if we're going to wake up tomorrow. I don't know if like after 15 years you find like, I guess I'm going to wake up every day. But they have no belief. So every single night is like a death slowly approaching. It's like we move through. Dada gets home. We're getting closer to death. <laughs> it's dinner time. Death marches on. We have like that 15 minutes before they have to go to bed after dinner death. We must do every single thing possible in the next 15 minutes because after that it's done. At the same time, they learn limited resources very quickly. We have magnetiles. I don't know if you guys have magnetiles. My kids love magnetiles. I'd never seen these things until I had these kids, but they love them. We got a little set of 30 of them when Rose was like two. And now we have three kids and we still have the same 30. And Ezra and Rose are constantly playing with them. It's like, okay, cool, we'll buy a set. And Rose, back up on this nice big box we got a deal on that was 50 more magnetiles. So they went from 30 to 50. If you just do the math, they went from 30 they were sharing to if I just made two even piles, they have 40 each. Who here thinks they were okay with their 40? <laughs> no. But you can see the logic of it. If... Your day is fast approaching, and you have no idea something more is going to come to you. And you have this short window to build your magnificent magnetile tower. And you put this tower, and they build magnificent towers, and they put this tower together. And Rose, even if she's had to give 10 tiles to Ezra, that tower is now going to be 10 tiles less magnificent than it would have been if she had all 80. It is a world we live in that is so tightly shaped by death and deprivation, and it's not limited to kids. I don't know if you guys are aware that, um, I think it's like near, around a dozen people have died this season climbing Mount Everest. I didn't know there were seasons to climb Mount Everest, but apparently it's mountain climbing season right now. Um, there's like a short window in which you can climb Mount Everest. Um, that was one thing I learned. The other thing I learned, because I had this image of climbing Mount Everest as being this solitary thing where the sole person with their Sherpa gets to the top of the mountain and for a moment they are at the highest point on earth by themselves, man against nature, and then they come back down. Has anyone seen the photo of the climb to Mount Everest? 
it looks like the worst line Disneyland ever created. It's, and basically they're standing in line there and people are literally dropping down in front of them and they're stepping over them to get to the top that's the size of two ping pong tables where they then mull around and take selfies and then come back down stepping over bodies on the way. This is Mount Everest. The last thousand feet looks like the worst line you've ever seen. They're basically all strapped in just standing here waiting their turn. What's happening and honestly, this sounds like the worst possible experience to me. I'm an introvert who doesn't like crowds. I'm comfortable now, so I'm cold at like 75, and it's negative 30 there. It's, I'm asthmatic, and it's low oxygen, and you have to stand in line. That's hell. Very cold hell. But they're doing this. And the reason people are dying is twofold. One is basically you can like almost just show up in Nepal now and like some tour guy's like, hey, you want to go to Everest? So there's not a lot of preparation that's going on with some of these trips. But the other thing is it takes long because there's a line. So eventually you go up there and you have canisters of oxygen because the air is too thin, so you have to bring compressed oxygen. But they're heavy, so you don't want to carry more than you need. And then you get up there and you're standing in line. I mean, this, this sort of thing happens to me all the time, but usually it's because I have no gas in my tank and suddenly I'm in traffic because I ride that red line. But it's that sort of thing where they have these limited resources and they get stuck in line. And it's, they just, they're in line too long and suddenly they just run out of oxygen. So 12 people have died, 11 or 12 people have died this, like basically this month. Or the season's like a three window, so th three weeks, 12 people died. Lack of oxygen. What was interesting, there's a great article in the New York Times about this like a week ago. And there's a, but there's one part that stands out because there's a, a Lebanese professional climber who is just, she's bemoaning this fact of how this all works. And she's talking about how it changes, I think, the moral calculus of it. Because you have limited resources. So if you give oxygen to somebody else, you have less oxygen, so you put yourself at risk. So again, death and deprivation are standing here. But what's interesting is she's talking about this and she's telling a story of how she's climbing this mountain and she gets to this person who falls, is falls down in front of her and she, I think she actually gives them a little bit of oxygen but she realizes she can't give them too much or else she's going to put herself at risk. Which makes sense. So she goes continues in line up to the top of the mountain, hangs out up there for a while, and comes back down with the body. So it's not, because you read that, like, it makes sense if you get to this person, you're like, okay, if I grab you and give you oxygen, maybe the two of us can make it down. I don't know if that's worth the risk. But for her it was, if I give them oxygen, I don't have enough time to get up there to the top myself and then come back down. And the article acts like that's not weird. And you kind of understand because this is something where this is a mountain climber. This is a mountain climber looking at the highest mountain on earth. This is something that, you ha that takes a lot of logistics to plan for. It takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of money. This is tens of thousands of dollars often that have gotten her to this point. And she is now 100 yards away from the goal. And there's a person dying. And the question is not... So you're saying, if she, if she stops and turns around now, if she takes this person and gives them oxygen and climbs back down the mountain, there is a chance she never gets up there. It's a world shaped by death and deprivation. 
Because how much different would the moral calculus be if she knew that she had eternity to try and climb this mountain? That she knew that she helps this person down right now and she potentially comes away with a friend and she literally has an eternal number of years still remaining to get to the top of that mountain. The whole math changes. We live in a world that is so shaped by the, the limited resources and by a limited amount of time that we don't even realize it. It's the water. It's the water that we breathe. It's the water we breathe. It's the water we just live in. We don't know we're wet because it's so much just baked into the nature of this age. But the gospel has turned that upside down. We are a people who have, literally have, a limitless amount of time and a limitless amount of resources. We don't have it all right now, but we have a limitless amount of time and a limitless amount of resources. And we need to understand that for most of what Peter is going to say for the rest of this book to make any sense. Because most of what he calls for is setting aside some sort of privilege, setting aside, accepting something bad happening to you. Pretty much for the sake of the gospel. And that is something that is often abused. This is why religion has the reputation of the opiate of the masses. Because it is absolutely harmful if it's not true. Honestly, if this is all you have and you take Christianity seriously and try and follow it, you've made a mistake. Because the sincere aspect of this, of actually this life is supposed to be lived through Christianity in a way that actually lives as though we have limitless resources. Now, usually we hedge our bets a lot, to be honest. I hedge my bets, just owning that, but that's what we do. But this is why Paul says that if this isn't true, we are the most to be pitied. I mean, if this isn't true, if you've got 70 years, get everything you can out of this. Why would you lay anything down? Why would you accept being in a bad situation for the hope of saving someone? And also, though, if it's true, we remember that we serve the one who judges impartially, the father who holds this world in his hand and will see everything paid correctly. It's why you can get the absolutely bonker stuff that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are pretty much everything who has terrible stuff now. Woe to those who have everything now. Love your enemies. Turn your cheek. They take your tunic. Make sure they get your cloak as well. They want you to go one mile, go two. That makes no sense if all you have is what you have on your body right now and all you have time-wise is what remains in this life. Zero. And that's probably why, as Christians, we often do such a lousy job living it because it's really hard to embrace this is the fundamental truth. It's why we have to live this by faith. And this is also something why is this most safely done. I'm not looking at any one of you and saying this 
is the thing. This is what you should be giving up. This is the thing you should be dealing with. This is the trial you just need to endure. It's why Terry was talking about, he doesn't, it's what thing is hindering you from following the gospel? It's not for us to get up here and say, this one for you, this one for you, this one for you. All, all of you watch the Smurfs. It just, it doesn't go that direction. Sorry, 80s Christians. Um, yeah, I didn't grow up around them. Actually, I grew up around them and thought it was strange. Um, but it's not for us. And that's enough because the other place this really gets abused is it comes from leaders who simply go on, this is for you and this is for you. And none of you should be dancing and just breaking down all the laws to give what has to happen. Or you all need to give to this church because I need a jet. Yes, we do need a jet. That's actually <laughs> go to mercytown.com, select giving. Yes, reason jet. We'll get a good deal, we promise. Um, yes. So the question is, what, am, what are we willing to lay aside for the sake of the gospel? Because that that's how Peter challenges them to live through trials. They are constantly laying something aside. He doesn't say, it's all getting better, best life now. That's not the message of First Peter. It is more how you endure through a trial. And the biggest message of how you endure through trial is you know that the trials are a blink compared to eternity. So Terry had asked me earlier, and it's been run out of my head, he referenced the Paul comment that he is all things to all people. And we were talking, he was talking about that, like what things would we lay aside to, to essentially to win people to the gospel. Now that is a horribly abused scripture. If you're in your 20s and you're a Christian, it's like, why were you at the strip club doing blow until 4 a.m.? Uh, all things to all people, trying to win a few is pretty much the answer there. <laughs> it's not what Paul had in mind there. Um, listen to the, th the way Paul phrases that se section. This is 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I may win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now this is the guy who is also going to tell them, do not eat food sacrificed. To, if they, they tell you this food has been sacrificed to idols, it's like a little in the book, don't eat it. Because it gives a bad testimony. So he's not like, just do whatever they're doing. But what he is saying is that he gives up certain aspects of his social position and his social customs to be with these people for these people. He is a person who lives free of the Jewish law. He is a Jew. He was born and raised a Jew, the Jew of Jews by his own uh, statement. But he no longer views the ceremonial law as holding something over him. But if he is hanging out with Jews, he's washing his hands when they do. Because he doesn't want to put any offense 
that might prevent them from hearing the message he is trying to put before them. And there are likely aspects of the Jewish culture, and he knows that he is ashamed by certain things, but he's not going amongst the Gentiles being as Jewish as he possibly can. He is going there and trying to, through every means he can and at every spot he can meet them, match them in their culture so that they can, there's no additional hindrance to the gospel. He is laying down his privileges, his position, so that they might better hear the gospel. It sums it up in verse 19. He's not going and doing whatever wild party there's going to. He is a servant to all. He does this. He is all things to all people in that he is a servant to all people that, so that he might win some. It's about laying down privilege. It's about how much good we could do in this world if we weren't obsessed with what we can obtain in this life. What would our witness be? Because this is a spot where the church falls down. We preach this, and then we don't live it. We usually preach to other people, please take care of the sins I've already mastered. And don't talk about the ones that I have. Or we say, as I think it's, it's James or John, one of the J's. Basically, we say, I'll pray for you, but we don't give him food. We stand outside this age. We're meant to stand outside this age. We are, by nature of our calling, elect exiles. And there are pressures to yield to its morals. Every single day, there are pressures to yield to the way this world views how life should be lived. And Peter counsels against that directly in this book. But typically, as outsiders seeking to win converts, Christians seek to give a good and acceptable testimony by compromising on our morals while retaining our position. And the message Peter is driving us towards is the opposite. We are to give a good testimony of this gospel that has called us and saved us by not compromising on our morals, but being willing, willing to yield our position, being generous, being willing to give, to go the extra mile while holding tight here. I think Tim Keller talks about how in the Roman world, people were loose with their morals and tight with their purse strings. And Christians came and were tight with their sexual morals and loose with their purse strings. And it turns the world upside down. That's the challenge of 1 Peter. He's writing to people in persecution and urging them to give a good testimony by being willing to yield a position, being willing to yield to a trial, being willing to endure with joy, praying for your enemies while upholding what the holiness that God has called you to walk in, the generosity he has called you to walk in. He is calling us to live out Christ's example. And this is a radical departure. 
You can see the appeal of yielding on your morals while keeping your position. You get the best of both worlds, but it's also a terrible testimony, and sadly, it is by and large the testimony that American Christianity has right now. We pick and choose morals. We yield and make all sorts of unholy alliances, and we do it while retaining a position. Our challenge is to do the opposite. In doing that, we emphatically state what we believe because it makes no sense otherwise. To go to this world and say, I am going to uphold and walk a path that sets me as an outsider, but I am going to yield to and bless you in every way that I can, that I'm going to seek after your good and not my own, that I'm going to pray for you even when you're hurting me. That only makes sense if you truly believe that you have received an imperishable seed, that this life is not the end of it. For the, the non-Christian, the goal is for the glory to be everlasting. Actually, for the non-Christian, what actually happens is the glory is fading. But for the Christian, the thing that is fading the thing that withers away like grass, the thing that is here a moment and there and gone the next is our trials. They are a blink in comparison to eternity. But the kingdom that is planted within us will stand forever.